Wow, good morning, South. It is, it is great to see you guys from up here again. I want to make an official announcement from the board that the board did not decide that 40 was over the hill, okay? I'm, I kind of felt that when I saw that, 40 over the hill. I mean, I feel it when I step up on this, this platform. So if you felt a little, a little bad about that, it was a staff decision anyway. No, we'll hold up Larry accountable to that. Let me... Um, as we get into this talk and this time together, let me just ask uh, you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, this is uh, a time in the week when we come before you and, and we want to sit before you and hear from you. We know that we need your help with that. We can't do it on our own. We need your spirit to work in our hearts, to bring your scriptures alive, to point us to Jesus. And so we ask that you would do that for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So some of you may know that my wife Heidi and I used to live overseas, our kids. We lived there for most of a decade. And I would say the question that we're asked the most is, what do you miss about living overseas? And it's really easy to answer that because we miss the community. Now, whenever you leave someplace, you tend to idealize it. So I realize that that could be part of it. But we were, as a foreign community, several hundred in a city of several million. And so you immediately had this island mentality of we, we kind of have to take care of our, one another. And we had a shared purpose. We, we were involved with different works, but almost all of us were there to encourage the local population in the name of Jesus, to help them in practical ways, to do other works such as that. And so there was a sense of being known and needed as one of the docs in the community. I would often get phone calls. What do, I, what do I do with these symptoms? Where should I go? Do I need to leave? Probably what I liked the most, though, is that communities were overlapping. I don't know about you, but here, if I go to work, I don't see the same people that I see here on Sunday, and I certainly then don't see them in my neighborhood. They're all very disjointed, but there, I'd see a lot of the same people, whether I was in the clinic or at the international school or at our fellowship. It was just a sense of being known and being a part of things. But when I thought about that, I realized it wasn't like that at the beginning. I went overseas when I was in my early 40s. And so I had roles that I played. I had some titles. And all of a sudden, I found myself living in a community where I couldn't speak to most people around me at the beginning. But even those people that I could speak with didn't know who I was. And it was very unsettling. How about you? Have you had that experience? Maybe you've recently relocated, or maybe your life circumstances have changed in such a way that you suddenly are like, I don't feel like I'm known. And that raises the question, why do we get so much joy in times like that when we know we're in good community? Is community optional? We've all got apps, right? We've got Nextdoor, we've got all these, we've got our South app. I've got this great Peak Finder app. So when I'm hiking, I can look and see, and people will be like, what mountain's that? And I'll go, oh, I can show you, look at this. And they go, that's so cool that you've got that app. Is community like an app that you can just kind of add on and it makes life better? Or is there something so important and fundamental to who we are that if we're not in community, we miss out, and the community that we should be a part of misses out. 
So scripture has some great things to teach us about community. And as we continue in this series on transformed, we're going to look at three things. Where transformational community was lost, where it was found, and what community for transformation looks like. And, And when I say that, I don't mean just a community that's out there changing the world. But besides that, a community that within it is being transformed and that it includes individuals that are going through the process of transformation. So let's first look at community lost. If we're going to ask when it was lost, we have to think, when did it start? And it's pretty old because in the very first words of Scripture, we have community. In the beginning was God. Scott talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But the Trinity, our three-in-one God, had perfect community from before time. And we don't think on that very much, but can I encourage you to, to ponder for a minute what perfect community would be like where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit know one another perfectly, therefore they're known perfectly, they're loved infinitely, they honor one another perfectly, they rejoice together, and then they decide to create together. Notice the plural, let us make mankind in our image. Creation was amazing as they did that. Now, there are some theologians and philosophers that have decided that this trinity and the love that the trinity has is really important. I really wanted to use Larry's, Larry's brain here. You guys were here last week. As a physician, I was kind of thinking, this is really funny. There's Larry up there as a pastor doing neuroscience, and I'm going to get up next week and talk philosophy and theology. But anyway, (laughs) one of our country's earliest theologians and philosophers was Jonathan Edwards. In fact, it was before we were a country. It was in the colonial days. I love reading biographies about these people because Jonathan Edwards went to Yale when he was 13, having met the requirement of being functional in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. Okay, so using Larry's brain, we've got the amygdala, we've got the prefrontal cortex, and then you have to get a whole nother fist in there to get a Jonathan Edwards brain. He was a really bright guy. And he said that the very essence of reality was the intra-Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was the anchor to reality. And that the only possible reason for such a perfect being to create the universe was to share and extend that love to other imperfect beings. So 300 years ago or so, in a congregation in New England, he wrote this, There in heaven this fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacles to hinder access to it. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. There, the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at and to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. You can see the word that keeps repeating that the the reality in this universe 
is the Trinity and this amazing love. And at the beginning of creation, everything was perfect. That love was extended to Adam and Eve, and they enjoyed it. And the last phrase in Genesis 2 is, the man and the woman were naked, and they weren't ashamed. Everything was as it should be. But then, of course, community was lost, and relationships started to break as we turned the page to Genesis 3. And so I want to spend a little bit more time. Scott touched on this two weeks ago. I want to drill down a little bit deeper. And so as we read together the beginning of the fall, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The first relationship that was broken in the garden was the relationship that every other relationship depends on. It's our relationship with God. When, when theologians look at this passage, they see that the fall that occurred wasn't just this relationship, but there's four relationships that are broken. And those four relationships are what are required for there to be a community that's transformational. And so we're going to look at each of these one at a time. First, the relationship with God is broken. Then, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and so I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Something's new in the story. Something's there that wasn't there before. Shame and fear. Suddenly they realize something's wrong. And so they look around and they start grabbing fig leaves to cover themselves. Now that had to be a little odd. I'm sure they didn't give that great a coverage. But the reality is that we do that as well, don't we? In everybody's life, we realize there's something not right. And there's a narrative that we all have that we somewhere picked up that is the narrative we believe ought to be who we are. And so it's a mask, it's some fig leaves. For some people, it's their workaholics. For some people, it's wealth. For some people, it's pride. Over-serving, people-pleasing. And so the question that might be worth answering is what, what are your fig leaves? What is it? What's the false self that you feel we need, you need to present to be okay? How do you want others to perceive you? This brokenness with ourselves has been captured in a lot of great quotes. One of my favorites is Blaise Pascal. A hundred years before Jonathan Edwards in France, this mathematician child prodigy who had a vivid Christian journey said, we would cheerfully be cowards if that would acquire us a reputation for bravery. Is that not condemning? 
But that's the broken relationship with self. But of course, it, it continues. The broken relationship with others. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. I find this verse fascinating. Some people look at scripture and they say the Bible is so ethereal and it's not true to real life. But here in the third chapter of Genesis, you've got Adam throwing Eve under the bus and blaming God for it all at the same time. This is so true to life, isn't it? I've got an amen already over here. It doesn't say anything about what Eve was doing at this point, but I believe that what Eve was doing was what in our family is fondly called the slusher look. Do you know that look, husbands? That just the face narrows down and there's this look. There's no words necessary, right? Because it's that look of, you may not be alive in the morning. It's that look of, I don't need to say anything. That was such a ridiculous thing to say. Now, it's important for me to point out that whenever my wife gives me the slusher look, it's done in jest and always in love. But um, I'm, I'm convinced as a physician that it's carried on the X chromosome, it's recessive, and so it's expressed just in women, and then the women can apply it to men who are all sons of Adam. Anyway, so you don't need to go any further than your experience in the last 48 hours to know that relationships with people are broken. That's an easy one. Last one, relationship with creation. And Adam said... And to Adam, God said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is all about the earth not being the way it's supposed to be. There's, there's disaster and disease, but there's also our broken relationship with it. There's misuse and abuse of resources. There's poverty. And in the epistles, when Paul is unpacking all about the, what the Christian journey is about and helping the new churches understand it, he writes to the Romans, we know that the whole creation was subjected to frustration. It has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Things simply are not the way they should be. And so, perfect community was lost with the broken relationship to the garden. Self, God, self, others, and creation. But of course, the good news is the community was found. Mary was there that day, Mary and her other children. This passage is from the Synoptic Gospels. You see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you look at the Mark passage, you get this sense that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it was like this explosion of activity. Something new was going on, and people from all over were coming. First, Jesus starts to cast out demons and show that he's got power over the spiritual realm. And then he's healing people. He's restoring hands. 
things are getting really crazy. The Pharisees in Jerusalem say, He's, he must be possessed by Beelzebub to pull this stuff off. But even his family thought things were getting out of hand. It says that people from vast numbers of people from all around were coming in. And they came into a room, and so Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. And it says, Mary and his brothers and sisters thought he'd lost his mind, and they're going to go take charge of him. So things are really kind of wild, a lot of tension going on here. And so they show up. Now, it's legitimate that Mary and the siblings of Jesus would go and get him and pull him out of there because family was a huge institution in that day. I mean, we hear about it now in the news, right? They'll, we'll hear about the honor of family in the Middle East and how something that led to something. But back then, it was, it was almost everything. Family indicated who you could marry, what your job would be, what your position was in culture. So it made sense that they'd march down there and kind of straighten Jesus out. And so we read in Matthew 12, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are outside, standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now we read that and we go, that's cute, that's nice, that's a nice picture. But in that day, people would have been going, what? There's no way. And Mary, would Mary maybe have been doing the slusher look? Like, what? I came down here and you're blowing me off? I have a feeling she wasn't. There's hints that Mary treasured things in her heart, that she understood things. And I think... Mary probably understood that Jesus was not saying that family isn't important. But there's something new. More important, it's eternal and it's redemptive that Jesus is doing. Jesus was a teacher. And you can use dry academic words like curriculum when you look at his work because he had a curriculum. And here he's giving you an idea what it looked like. He's saying, I'm going to have people that follow me. I'm going to have an apprenticeship. People come and they hang out with Jesus for two or three years. And they do life together. But he's giving a picture for us so that we know what that looks like. And that was really countercultural in Jesus' day. Where everything focused on their family. And it's really countercultural for us these days as everything focuses on me. Right? What do I want to do? But we're called to be part of the family. Now, what I would love for us to just pay attention to is that as Jesus is really busy establishing his kingdom work, he's restoring all of the broken relationships from Genesis. Think about it. He's healing the sick. He can calm, in Luke, he calms a storm right after this happens. He addresses social injustice. So he's, he's renewing or restoring that broken relationship with community or with creation. How about the broken relationship with others? I'd love to have an inside look at a day in the life 
of the apostles. He had just appointed them. There was uh, Andrew and Simon and James and John. They were fishermen. Now, I used to work in an ER in southern New Jersey. It was on the shore. We had commercial fishing in that area. And they are a rough bunch. If you look up dangerous professions, commercial fishing is way up there. It is a crazy job. But I could often tell that I had a fisherman in the ER long before I laid eyes on him, right? You could walk down a hall and you'd be like stopped in your tracks. What, what is, oh, there's a fisherman in from one of the boats. They were a rough bunch. I could just, and Jesus nicknamed James and John's the sons of thunder. Okay, these were not gentle guys. And then you've got Matthew who wrote this. Matthew had clean fingernails. Matthew had nice clothes. And he had that because as a tax collector, he would be joined by a couple of Roman soldiers and he would go to his fellow citizens and take tax money and a little extra for himself if he wanted. And yet somehow these people who would never be together are together in Jesus' followers. Paul, again, as he unpacks things for the early church, he writes to the Colossians, he says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, think back for a minute now to that Jonathan Edwards passage. What was the characteristic of the Trinity, and what flowed out to people but love. He says, since you're loved as individuals, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, bear with each other, and forgive each other, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Do you see the trend? It's coming from that greatest reality in the universe, the Trinity, it's love that comes into a person, individual, and then that is what allows them to get along with other people. So Jesus is renewing and restoring the broken relationships with others, but he's also addressing the broken relationships we have with ourselves. And this is one that I think the evangelical church often just plain misses. Remember that it was fear. A Christian psychologist, contemporary, writes, Jesus is the antidote to fear. His love, not our believing certain things about him or trying to do as he commands. And can I can ask you to look at that line again? It's, I think this, I think he wrote those two things because these are the things that we're really good at. If you think about the church, well, I believe certain things about him and I do my best to do all that I'm supposed to do. Those are the two things that we're really good at. But it's his love is what holds the promise of releasing us from the bondage of our inner conflicts, guilt, and terror. Our gaze needs to go back and forth between divine love and our fears. We gain courage to face our fears as we soak in love. Now, I suspect you're like me, and we've got parts of us that we simply do not like. 
I think about it, and I, there's things I think about, and I cringe, right? There's things we did that we shouldn't have. There's things that were done to us that shouldn't have happened. There's things we should have done that we didn't do. And we wish there was that factory reset, right? That you could just hit it, and then things go back to the install, factory install that never happened. But that's not how Jesus works. Jesus takes those pieces of us that are the worst, the ugliest, the most unpleasant, and instead of making them go away, he redeems them. He makes them something that, in a sense, is beautiful, that can encourage others and can show his glory. So that's, it's not just about love, but it's about who you really are. Over 900 years ago or so, another great saint, Bernard of Clairvaux, wrote, I need both truth so that I cannot hide from him and grace so that I do not wish to hide. I love that quote. Lastly, though, and most importantly, Jesus invites us to reconnect with God himself. Now, do you remember the story what happened? The first thing that happened, when their eyes were opened, they realized, uh-oh, something's wrong. And they covered themselves with fig leaves, right? Well, it's interesting that when that happened, it's almost as if God was standing there and, like, you know, the fashion consultants would go, hmm, that's not going to work. That's just not right. And so the Lord God himself made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God was the actor in this. He saw their attempt, but it was pathetic. It was not going to do the trick. And this must have been shocking. This was the first shedding of blood. But it's a picture for us, right? It's a picture for exactly what Jesus does. Jesus sees our attempts, and he goes, no, that's not going to work. And he comes over and he says, here, put, put this on instead. It's my righteousness. This is what you need. And in fact, give me that other stuff. I'm going to redeem that for you. As Paul unpacks that, theologians call this the great exchange that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's interesting that there is a sense that the good news has bad news embedded in it. Have you ever thought about that? There's no one better than Tim Keller at vocalizing this when he says, the gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. That's kind of bad news, isn't it? That is not fun stuff. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And, and you need both, right? If you just have one, it falls a little flat. Especially if you just have the first part, right? It really, it's really depressing. But those two together are the gospel. And so, as Jesus restores the broken relationships from the garden... He is also creating a new family. And that is what brings us to the final point here, which is what community for transformation looks like. Well, it depends on where you're standing, 
okay? If you're standing from within that community, it should look like a family. And I, I think it's wonderful that, that Jesus gave us that picture because even though there's a lot of dysfunction in most every family, it's something we all understand. It's something we all relate to. And so as you think about your Christian family, I want you to think about how it matches up with what we know about families. There are some things that we learn about families. Some of these things you see very clearly in Scripture. Others are just that we've learned through time. Families are multi-generational relationships of various intimacy. You know, we've got moms and dads that, that have cared for us for years, that have prayed for us, that love us, that kind of know how we're put together. But we've also got brothers and sisters who we've been through thick and thin with. We have fights with, we have fun with. We have grandparents who share their wisdom. And as they need, we come along and help them with things that are hard to do. We've got cousins and aunts and uncles. Some of them are a little quirky. But they're still in our family, right? We can't really get away. They're still at the funerals. They're still at the weddings. And we belong to them. We're connected with them. We work with them. Families also have proximity. I thought as I, I wrote this point down that, you know, in this age of internet, there's a lot of people that have community that's virtual. And I know that there's legitimacy to that, especially if you can see the person on, on a video you're talking. But when you have proximity, that means you're near one another. You can share things. You can drop in. I grew up in rural New England. I lived in this house. Next door was the house my mom grew up in, where grandma and grandpa lived. And then there was a field, and there was a trailer. And that's where Grammy lived. Now, when it snowed, there were not three snowblowers that came out, right? There was just one snowblower. You just needed one. We shared things because we lived near one another, and we worked together. There's some inconvenience to that, too, right? People can just drop in. But there's a priority on hospitality, since we brought that up. I've heard it said that if you want to be generous with your money, write a check. And if you want to be generous with your life, you're hospitable. When Heidi grew up, there was always room at the table for one more chair. Food wasn't going to be fancy, but it was like, yeah, come on, just join in. She had a friend, one of her better friends, and it was always... Oh, we got to have you over sometime. we got to have you over summertime. But she almost never was invited over because before someone could come over, everything had to be perfect, right? But, of course, that never happens, right? And you can see how this is tied back to embracing our brokenness a bit. We need to let people in to see the mess a bit. And it's also really nice if you go over, if you help with the dishes or do something like that. But... Spending time with people in your space. Families have traditions. When we lived overseas, there was one family that we always got together with on Thanksgiving because he had a birthday and then we'd celebrate Thanksgiving. On Christmas Eve, the docs from the clinic and their families would all go to one apartment and celebrate together. When our kids had birthdays, we had our surrogate aunts and uncles come and celebrate because we were just building these traditions without even realizing that's what they are. That's what church does too. We do things 
and tradition. So again, how many of these do you have in your Christian family? I'll bet you have this, difficulties. Because being in families, tough. You're close to people. You're dropping in on people. You're stepping on people's toes. Family is the place where there's the death of ego. One, one writer from not long ago, Jean Veneer, wrote a great little book called From Brokenness to Community. And he writes, We will only stay in community if we have gone through the passage from choosing community to knowing that we have been chosen for community. It's Jesus' calling for us. It's the way we're to live. And that's why he said, we don't forgive seven times, we forgive 70 times seven. Well, lastly, what does community look like if you're on the outside and you're just observing it? Hopefully, it looks like Jesus. I mean, after all, isn't the church referred to as the body of Christ? Didn't he say, whoever believes in me will do works I have been doing and they will be even greater? There's just this organic thing that happens. I've got an interest in refugee work and you find other people that have interest in refugee work and you come together. We see that happening again and again here and it's so encouraging. But our default culturally is to think about what am I doing, isn't it? Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. And I think of when I was a kid, I would get on my bike and I'd be holding my fishing pole and my bag would be over my shoulder and I'd ride down the road and I'd go to the stream. I can remember fishing and even praying at that. This is, this is sort of early faith, praying that a fish would bite my hook. But um, it's me, right? But when Jesus said, I will make all y'all fishers of men, because that's what he said, Maybe not with quite that accent. Sorry, Rodney, I know you don't like that. Um, when they fished, they fished as a group. They had a big net. It wasn't this one sort of guy doing that sort of thing. So there, the more we do as people, it invites others to join. So we're doing that here. I love it. The food bank, family promise, celebrate recovery, and on and on. The church should look like no other group because there are people hanging out with other people that would never normally be together. And when people run into those individuals, they should be amazed. Because it seems like something that maybe at one point they were ashamed of or wasn't right or wrong about them suddenly blesses other people. And the way we take care of one another, just that caring for one another is a huge witness. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. But it seems hard, doesn't it? As we close, I, I want us to think about how do we do this? Because there's some difficulty here. There's difficulty getting along with other people and there's a lot of hard work to be done. There's difficulty, especially, I think, in embracing our brokenness. Let me bring you back to the beginning. Let me bring you back to that perfect community. Can you stretch your mind's eye to think about what that would be like, that perfect 
being known and celebrating and loving one another, rejoicing in one another, lifting up one another. But there was one time that that fellowship was broken, wasn't it? And the words were cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the key. That was done so that we could enjoy that fellowship and have access to it. That was done so that we could be healed. He did that so that together we could, as a family, go outside of these walls and continue the work he did. He does that for our joy. He does that for our glory. And so let's thank him for that together. Father, it's amazing to think about the way you work uh, in and through us and the fact that there was something eternal and beautiful that you invite us into. Father, you want that to heal us and you want it to heal us with one another. You've said to us that we're to be your family. And so I pray that as we, even today, as we celebrate 40 years as a church, that we would be reminded that you're doing great things. And we pray that the offerings we make in our service would uh, be multiplied like the fish in the loaves and bring great joy to you and honor to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.